You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. This is the first official Monster Talk episode. So this is the point in which we don't cuss anymore, or when uh, does that well, start? Well, I can fix that in post. That's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk. Monster Talk is an audio companion to the website monsterscience.org where we're collecting science articles that deal with monsters. If a creature is weird, alien, mythical, or bizarre, we'll talk about it. This is our first episode and introductions are in order. Our Monster Talk panel consists of Ben Radford, Dr. Karen Stolznow, and myself. My name is Blake Smith and I've been investigating paranormal encrypted matters as a skeptic for about 10 years, but have been reading and watching documentaries about the topic for more than 20 years. I'm a writer, researcher, and web developer, and you can find a link to my bio and some of my more regularly updated websites on the show's web home, monstertalk.org. Ben? Yes, I'm Ben Radford, an uh, investigator and writer uh, and managing editor of Skeptical Inquirer Science Magazine. I've been interested in cryptozoology and uh, all its various manifestations from chupacabras to lake monsters to uh, Bigfoot, uh, you name it, for uh, over 10 years now. Um, and my last book, uh, which was co-authored by Joe Nickel, was Lake Monster Mysteries. And so I've spent an inordinate amount of my time uh, looking into uh, lake monsters and cryptozoological things. I'm Dr. Karen Stolznow, a linguist with a background in anthropology and history. I'm an investigator of pseudoscientific and paranormal phenomena from a sceptical and scientific perspective. I've spent over a decade researching and road testing a range of beliefs and practices, including hauntings, psychics, cults, alternative medicine, and linguistic phenomena. I write about my findings for a range of publications and sites, such as the James Randi Educational Foundation SWIFT, for Skeptic.org, my bad language website, Skeptic Blog, and my Naked Skeptic web column, 
for the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. I live and work in the San Francisco Bay Area, but I'm originally from Australia, the home of the Yowie, the Bunyip, and Drop Bears. Tonight, the monster we're going to be talking about uh, will be Bigfoot, the uh, hypothetical uh, North American ape. And, and all the variants. And, uh, and many variants. And our guest tonight is going to be uh, Dr. Todd Disotel, and we'll give him an intro in just a little bit. Uh, so, depending on your point of view, Bigfoot's been a part of American culture either since the 20s with the Ape Canyon incident, or as I like to think of it, starting from the 50s in 1958 with the Jerry Crew uh, footprints, and then, of course, it came into the big uh, popular uh, consciousness after the Roger Patterson film in 1967. Uh, since then, there's been a variety of uh, sightings, um, lots of footprints, alleged hair, but no uh, unique DNA evidence or a body or a skeleton um, or any evidence that would convince uh, most skeptics. And since our panel is composed of skeptics, that puts us in the position of uh, continuing our vigilant skepticism. Absolutely. I mean, it's important to realize that you know there, there's there's no shortage of of Bigfoot evidence. The problem is, of course, that it's it's not good evidence. And so, you know, the, the history of, of Bigfoot evidence is very closely parallel to the history of hoaxes. Uh, everything from you've got carpet fibers being passed off as Bigfoot hair and transmission fluid being passed off as Bigfoot blood, and you know, take your pick. So. Uh, you know, maybe one day we'll actually get some good DNA evidence, and I'm, I hope that'll come up at some point. Now, that carpet fiber you're talking about, didn't that turn out to be buffalo hide? Well, there's actually a couple of them. One oh. of them, uh, actually, well, the, the one that I was, I was referring to turned out to be uh, Dynel fiber, which is used in, in carpets and wigs. Uh, that was found, as I recall, by uh, Mr. Freeman, who is, of course, a known hoaxer. Um, and uh, that that was actually that that's actually an interesting case because um, in that case it was touted as Bigfoot hair for for uh, several years where people thought it was it was claimed to be unidentified and it it took it actually took as I recall several years before a um, a physicist by the name of E. B. Wynn uh, W. Y. N. N. who finally identified what it was. Some people had said it was human hair. Some people said it was. Uh, non-human, uh, unidentified hair. Some people said it was uh, it was man-made, and finally, uh, this chemist said, "No, no, he figured it out, and it was in fact uh, Dynel fiber again, which is made by Union Carbide." So that, to me, is instructive because uh, again, here was Bigfoot evidence that was claimed to be hair, and it was you know unknown, it was mysterious, it was unidentified. Uh, and in the end, it was complete, it was completely identified. Um, but that didn't, that didn't mean that for, uh, months and years, it wasn't quote unquote unidentified. Interesting. And that's what people remember. Sure. Right. Did anyone ever investigate whether it was possible that was from a bald Bigfoot that was wearing a rug? Uh, I, I don't, I don't recall if, uh, Good uh, argument. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I mean, in, in the other case you're talking about, uh, you know, there was uh, there was a case in Manitoba, I think it was a couple years back, where there was a Bigfoot sighting uh, up in Canada, 
that was, uh, you know, it, it was allegedly from a, a it was allegedly hair that was found from that, and it, it did in fact turn out to be bison. And there was some question as to whether uh, it was naturally left there from uh, bison that are in the area, but not really that that close to there, or whether um, it was, you know, basically hoaxed and planted there from. Uh, you know, from a, a piece of uh, a piece of uh, hair or pelt or hide. Wow, we're going to have to do probably a whole episode on Freeman. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's a he's quite a character, or was I should say. Um, yes, yes, he's he's now hoaxing uh, hoaxing Bigfoot uh, tracks in heaven. I guess that's a, a real possibility. <laughs> <laughs> he's a guest on the Carson Show, no doubt. Monster dog. Everybody accepts Bigfoot as sort of a cultural phenomena. I don't know. I don't know. He's in a lot of folklore. Yeah, he's in a lot of folklore. And he, from a modern perspective, even things like the beef jerky ads, uh, he, he's just a part of American culture. That must be a Mess- southern thing. Messing with the squats, yeah. Like, yeah. You don't see those in California? No, even though we should, because uh, Bigfoot is most, I think, uh, predominant here. Yeah, it's a West Coast thing for the most part. There's a there's a chart on the Wikipedia article that has a distribution of reported Bigfoot sightings, uh, and it, by far, California, Oregon, and Washington uh, get the most, and then British Columbia and Texas, and Florida. Yeah, always in the forests and the redwood uh, parks. Right. It's, it's the frightening woods is what it is, I think. Um, I would attribute some of that, at least in part, to, to the phenomena in which uh, sightings tend to spawn other sightings. And so, for example, when I was looking at uh, the, the Lake Champlain creature and the distribution of sightings there in, in, in Lake Champlain between New York and Vermont, it was really fascinating how there were virtually no sightings, there were very, very few sightings until Sandra Mancy's famous photograph was published uh, in 1981. The sighting itself happened in, in 1977, after which there were very few sightings. But it, was, it wasn't until 81 when everybody heard about it. That's when the, uh, the reported sightings just spiked and, and increased exponentially. And so what that tells me is that, is that regardless of whether there is or isn't a creature in the lake, people reporting these things spawns other people reporting them because it's, it's in the news and it's in, it's in people's minds and it influences their expectations. Copycat sightings. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, and even if they're not intentional, it's certainly once you're predisposed to see a monster, then any unknown thing can become a monster. So, and often and interpretation, does. right? Mm-hmm. But if you go to the Bigfoot uh, Field Researchers Organization, uh, the database there, yeah. um, they've got sightings in each state. That's right. And uh-huh. the, the BFROs have different classifications of sightings there on their site, and, and the best, I believe, if I remember correctly, is a class one sighting, uh, where you're really 100% sure you're seeing a Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. It's so subjective, isn't it? Right, right. And so... But looking... Sorry. It picked me up and carried me. Yeah, that would be... <laughs> right. I was raped by Bigfoot, and I can... Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. I have DNA evidence all over my pants. So... In looking at the chart that they've got, it's... It, uh, they've got about 411 listings or sightings in California, which is... Ooh, 465 in Washington, 211 in Oregon, and, and, so they, uh, and Washington I mean, that seems like a lot if you just look at the number, but, you know, considering the population and the number of years they've been collecting the data, 
that's uh, and the classifications of what constitutes a sighting. That's not yeah. as uh, prevalent as you might imagine. They're very poor examples. I had a look at some in the local area, and uh, repeatedly there was a sighting in a place called Walnut Creek, which isn't too far from here. It's near Berkeley. And uh, what was actually sighted it was, was more of an audio thing, and someone heard a scream in the distance and attributed that to Bigfoot, and that was uh, listed as a, a sighting. And they're all pretty much along the same lines as that, just sounds and uh, just noises, really. Yeah, they, they do try to send follow-up uh, investigators, but I, I'm just not sure how critical they are. The BFRO has uh, one thing that they are a for-profit organization. It's run by a guy named Matt Moneymaker. And I love that name. I know. It's the, I, I, I hope Is that for real? That's, that's what I always yeah. want to ask. I would like to, I'd really like to talk to Matt if we can get an opportunity to do so because I'd like to know, A, does he really make money on it? And B, is that really his name? Is his name Moneymaker? <laughs> but yeah. A- he is, yeah, his name actually is Moneymaker, and in fact, they they do uh, they do make a tidy profit. The BFRO has been accused, uh, rightly I think, of uh, basically having these uh, weekend getaways where they promise people they're going to go out and look for Bigfoot, and they charge hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars, depending on which one it is, uh, to have a bunch of people go out and uh, hey, we're going to go find Bigfoot. Uh, so it, uh, the BFRO is indeed a money-making organization. My understanding is that you go and you're not actually allowed to run out in the woods and track down what's making the noises. And I've always been curious as to whether he had um, uh, what you might call sweeteners or something, someone out in the woods helping to make it seem more like a, a, an authentic Bigfoot experience. Uh, because what they don't seem to be carrying are dart guns and, and rifles and things to actually bring back a body. And uh, if Bigfoot were a real animal, what I would expect is for hunters to bag one, you know. Uh, and no matter how rare the creature is, if it's still alive, I think it's uh, a, a reasonable expectation that somebody could snag one. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that it's, it's interesting when you sort of look at uh, some of these cryptids and, and these uh, these mysterious animals from you know from the point of view that you know if they are in fact. Uh, you know the, these remnants of you know existing unknown populations. Um, if you if you look at them within the context of, of, of ecology and environmentalism, and basically the the um, the, the decreasing uh, habitat that's available for all wild animals, not just these cryptids. And so, you know, you've you've got a situation in which habitat for any and all animals uh, that are non not domesticated are shrinking by the day, and whether it's whether it's a wild boar or eagles or, or what have you. And uh, it seems curious to me that, you know, as each day and week and year go by, that the available space for these creatures to exist in Rome gets smaller and smaller. Uh, so you would expect that uh, that every passing week, month, and year would uh, bring us closer to, uh, to uh, you know, hard evidence or a body, but uh, that doesn't seem to happen. Mm, that's a really good point. Monster dog. So we're recording our first episode of Monster Talk tonight. This is Todd Disotel, and he is a professor of anthropology at New York University. And he has a bachelor's from Cornell, a master's, and a doctorate from Harvard. And his area of expertise is genetics and primate evolution. Is that fairly accurate? Uh, yes, perfectly accurate. Super. 
And the reason we've asked Todd to come on tonight is because he has been on multiple episodes of cryptozoological television shows, usually in the role of the DNA analysis person. So um, we'd like to ask Todd a few questions about his experience on those shows and where he stands on the mysteries of the North American primate. So, Todd, how did you get involved in cryptozoological television shows? Well, I have a history of working on the evolutionary genetics of primates, and I have some colleagues in the field, other anthropologists who knew of my area of work, knew that we could extract DNA from hair. Um, My lab group had helped uh, identify new subspecies of chimpanzees and gorillas, So I think the very first sample, actually, uh, Jeff Meldrum, a well-known anthropologist who has been searching for Bigfoot, got me some samples that we analyzed. Those turned out to be negative, and uh, I continued uh, to go along with it, although I always told them, you know, I was very skeptical for multiple reasons, but, you know, DNA is DNA. If... uh, I can extract DNA and sequence it. I can tell you what it is, or at least what it's not. How does that work? Well, we basically, depending on the source material, which can be uh, just last week I worked on uh, a DNA stain on some uh, shards of glass, uh, some blood on some glass. Uh, We extracted the DNA from that. We can extract it from saliva, from uh, tissue and blood, of course. Uh, We can get DNA out of hair, even from feces. So when an animal passes feces, some of that animal's cells are shed along with it, and we can extract DNA. In fact, for our primatological work, that's probably our main source. Really? How do you uh, separate the animal's DNA from the other bacteria? Well, we have all of the DNA in the sample, but we, in using the procedure called PCR, or the polymerase chain reaction, we use uh, chemical reagents that are sort of specific to the group that we're interested in. So I can use uh, what we call PCR primers that will only amplify primate DNA and say not bacteria DNA, bacterial DNA. If I'm casting my net wider, I could look for mammal DNA, again, versus bacterial DNA. So it actually doesn't matter if there's other DNA in the sample. We can zoom in on the DNA of interest. Um, Yes. Ben Redford here. Um, you had uh, you had mentioned uh, earlier in, in the, the, the sample that Jeff Meldrum had uh, given you, and you you said that uh, that the in two cases that uh, it came back negative. What what does negative mean? Well, in so in, in fact, sort of let's let's make it that even double negative. Several of my samples turned out not to have any DNA in them at all, uh, either because they were just too degraded or one I suspect wasn't actually even sort of biological material. It it didn't dissolve in the presence of things that should destroy proteins and other things. Um, Other samples had been exposed to the elements probably too long so that any DNA that may have originally been present basically was destroyed. Light, water, heat, humidity, all of these things can damage DNA. 
So that, that's what I mean by negative. The other negatives, of course, are when we say, well, in fact, this is a pig, you know, it's some kind of sewage, probably a wild boar hare. Uh, we have scientifically proven that bears do indeed defecate in the woods. Uh, cool. One of our feces samples turned out to, you know, be ursid or bear. Many yeah, of us took a hard scientist to figure that out. Right on. Yeah, you know, hundreds of dollars, many hours of work, and a two hundred fifty thousand dollar instrument to demonstrate that. Right on, Todd. Other uh, samples, uh, probably our most common result, like the one we just got yesterday, is uh, human. And that's either because it was a human who broke into the guy's fridge on the back porch and not Bigfoot, or it could have been contaminated by the people who collected it, uh, or anywhere sort of in the so-called chain of evidence. Oh, that's that's so, a great lead into one of my, my big questions is, if if you found a Bigfoot DNA, what what would you expect it to look like? Well, the, the other reason I do this is that's an intellectually interesting question that we literally debate in my lab, my postdoctoral researchers, my fellow professors, and I and grad students, we debate this all the time. What would it indeed look like? And I've sampled things from Australia, from the Himalayas, from all over North America. And, you know, the, the lead theories, of course, are that it's clearly primate. There are many people who think that it is basically a remnant population of Gigantopithecus, a fossil species thought to be closely related to orangutans. And that's probably the most common theory. Rush Shahan has published a book on this. Other people sort of subscribe to this. So if that was the case, what we would expect would be that when I test, I get a DNA sequence from a sample, that it falls amongst the living primates, it falls closest to the orangutans, but is not an orangutan. You know, so that it's several, literally million years, or at least several hundred thousand years separate from the orangutan, based on you know known mutation rates and so on. Other people say, well, it's a remnant Neanderthal, or it indeed is a Neanderthal uh, population that has survived. So in that case, again, we would expect the sequence to be closest to human but not within the range of modern humans. And now we actually have Neanderthal DNA sequences, so we could definitively say this falls within the realm of variation of known Neanderthals, of which there's over a dozen different Neanderthals have already been sequenced. And the complete Neanderthal genome should actually be complete within the next year or so. So we, we can... We can really nail it down if it's a purported Neanderthal. If it's an orangutan, or a relative of the orangutans, we would see that. Or if it's any other primate. The DNA database that we look at is uh, quite full for mammals. So, you know, if it was any other thing, if it was a giant ground sloth, which temporarily go bipedal, but when extinct, you know, 10,000 years ago or more, 
we would see DNA signature that was related to sloths, but not identical to any. So I, I, I think we would identify it. If I had a sequence that I could not explain, I'm perfectly willing to go forth with that. Um, before I do, I, I have multiple colleagues who run labs similar to myself who, for many good reasons, don't ever want to analyze samples <laughs> like this or deal with some of these people. And I can see why sometimes, but I've got agreements with multiple, I will. they will remain unnamed labs, that if I get something interesting, I will send them a tube or a sample and say, sequence this, and I won't tell them anything else. And, you know, if I got two other labs to come back with a sequence that was close to orangs but not an orang, we have, uh, you know, an important finding. And as I like to joke with people, uh, one of the reasons I can do this is, you know, I'm a tenured professor. I can't get fired for dabbling in fun stuff. I came across a good quote of yours from Scientific American, uh, and you said, I go along with this because I'm either doing good science, finding alternatives, or debunking, or I have the find of the century. Exactly. And um, so, you know, again, I don't have any qualms in working on this. I, um, I, I generally try to screen who I directly work with. My main problem, I guess, is, you know, I try to keep this to the scientific level. And my problem with many of the, the DNA or the, the Bigfoot proponents is they're out trying to prove something. And that's not what science can do. You know, if, if you have an agenda, I want to prove this you're inherently biased and right off the bat, red flags, you know, are raised. All we can do is disprove things. And I, I like to tell my students, we're left with the junk. We, we disprove every other thing and we have to just sort of provisionally accept the last thing left. So the, the, the hypothesis that we, we can't prove it, but we can't disprove it, we're stuck with that until proven otherwise. But if you're out there, I'm going to prove Bigfoot exists, you, in my mind, have instantly lost true scientific credibility. Well, You might be able to find scientists to work with, but if you already have that agenda, it's too easy to make mistakes, gloss over things, not look at the obvious, yes, bears do leave things in the woods. Um, just because you find a large pile of feces, you know, the first hypothesis you generate shouldn't be Bigfoot. <laughs> right. What other animal lives here and eats berries and does these things, you know, so... If you hear hoofprints, don't think uh, unicorns, right? Exactly. Yeah. And do you find that that's the bias of most people that you work with, or not um, the, the proponents, definitely. Um, you know, they are literally out there to prove something. And, you know, 
I inquiry is great. If you want to go out there and trudge around the woods to look for something, that's great because you're actually doing something positive. You know, you know, instead of just you know hypothesizing it and writing about it, if if you actually go out there and look for it, hey, you're going to get some exercise. You know, we all need that. Um, you might see something neat. Um, hopefully, you'll record the data well, and you know you're not going to do any damage. I occasionally worry about so-called Bigfoot hunters. Um, I, I have had the conversations where my uh, my screening method fails me. I actually have a, next to my office phone. I have a map of the United States with area codes, and so there are just certain places I just let the phone go to voicemail from. You know, most of the Pacific Northwest, wide swaths of the South, etc. So, you know, I always have to apologize to colleagues calling me from, you know, Northeast Colorado because I just never answer their phone calls. Um, but I will answer their emails. There are guys who claim they hunt them. I had one guy who he actually sent me bloody leaves. This was the blood trail of a large buck. He even referred to them as a buck that he had shot. But for some reason, even though he shot multiple ones over the years, they actually cart away the bodies. You know, they're like the Viet Cong. You, you can never actually recover the bodies. Very sneaky. Yeah. And But he, he even told me He's had dozens of sightings, and he would never shoot, you know, a, a, a baby or a child or a female. Um, he would only shoot, you know, a male. Um, and so I, I neglected to ask him, you know, like, what's the size of their genitalia? How do you know it's male? Because that would be interesting to know. And, and it especially, it might be scary depending on what answer he gave you. That's true. Exactly. <laughs> You know, well, let me let me ask you because you, you brought up a very good question, which is uh, which is something that I pointed out, which is that look, I mean, if if people want to go look for Bigfoot, hey, you know, knock yourself out, you know, get a, get a pair of shoes and uh, and a camera. What do you think about the argument? The reason that we don't have good evidence for these these cryptids, whether it's Bigfoot or Chupacabras or or Mothman, what have you, is that the scientists a don't take it seriously and b there's no money and that if just enough money were thrown at it then the, you know, the evidence would be there. The money question's a little tougher. Should the NSF, National Science Foundation, fund an expedition to look for this? Well, if they could marshal enough evidence to suggest there's credible, you know, that it, they might find it, if I was on that panel, I would let it go. You know, Jane Goodall and George Schaller wrote nice letters in their support. For me to get an NSF grant, there has to be a decent probability of a, a good outcome. So, in other words, the, the money follows the evidence, not backwards. Exactly. You know, and you know, there was actually just a big uh, article uh, in the New York Times this past weekend complaining about cancer research. We spend billions of dollars in a decade on cancer research without any huge, huge breakthroughs because everybody does the safe little incremental thing. And, you know, unfortunately, that's sort of how it works. Can you imagine what some congressman would do to NSF if 200 and a quarter million dollars of the taxpayers' money went to people running around, you know, Washington State looking for Bigfoot? 
I wouldn't want to be on that NSF panel. But, you know, if they could demonstrate that there's some credibility to this, this it's the find of the century. North America, between the number of hunters we have, and I'm, I grew up, and I'm now in New York, but I grew up in the Midwest. I hunted deer, rabbit, pheasant, squirrel. You know, I hunted anything that moved um, for years growing up. Um, there's hunters all over this country. I have found bear skeletons and coyote skeletons and all sorts of wild animal skeletons out in the woods. Um, why hasn't a single sample, a single Bigfoot skeleton, been brought in? Uh, you know how much that would be worth? <laughs> That's, you know, a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar, million-dollar find. Um, we haven't seen one. But the bigger problem with it, and I do something also called conservation genetics, you know, we look at highly endangered species and subspecies of primates all over the world. We characterize these populations' genetics. How variable are they? You know, there are some populations that have so little genetic variability that, you know, basically, unfortunately, they're doomed. That's actually uh, one of the questions I had for you, which is what size of population do you need to have for a viable genetic group to live? I you need hundreds, and I frankly cannot envision a population in the many hundreds of a large-bodied mammal being completely hidden in North America. I mean, that's my biggest problem. You can't just have, you know, three of these guys, you know, hanging out, hiding somewhere, you have to have a viable breeding population of hundreds of these individuals, and they can't be spread out one per state. Uh, you don't meet <laughs> if that happens. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So, I... That, that's my biggest problem, and that's where I think they would fail if they actually ever submitted an NSF grant. And I think that's actually the Bigfoot paradox, is there's the argument that they're extremely rare and they live in very rural places or hard-to-get-to places. At the same time, there's hundreds of sightings and lots of footprints around where people are. You can't have both. You know. Well, exactly. That is a paradox. One clear as day photo. Why are all the photos blurry? <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, and, and furthermore, why why hasn't the photographic evidence improved since 1967? I mean, that's what I find odd. Yeah, I mean, every bozo in the world, even somebody like me, has a camera on their cell phone now. Samples. I've personally probably tested 30 samples in the last 15 years. Not one of them wasn't something else. And, you know, it's, it, it's frustrating, and sometimes I now question it. Well, I need more information. Show me a picture of where you collected it. What did you do when you collected it? How did you preserve it? Because if I just said, oh, I'll test your sample, I would get a 1000 a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I really need to see sort of the credibility. But the other argument, they say, well, we never get funding. To my knowledge, although I might be wrong here, but I have never been sent a grant proposal nor a publication to review via the peer review process to do this. So it's it's easy to complain about, oh, we can't get funding. When's the last time you submitted a grant? Good point. And I review probably 50 grants a year and maybe 100 articles a year as associate editor of various journals or just ad hoc editor to journals, being on National Science Foundation and other panels or just ad hoc reviewers. Um, You can't complain that they won't publish our research or they won't fund our grants if they're not submitted. And so I don't know, like, has Jeff submitted NSF grants to actually study Bigfoot? Uh, I'll ask him next year at our meetings. I meet him every year at our meetings. Uh, I don't know if he's actually ever submitted an actual grant. I have never seen one. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, that's, that's one of the problems that, you know, you've got, you know, that there is such a lack, and, you know, certainly you know this as well as anybody, there's such a lack of rigorous rigorous methodology applied to this just across the across the spectrum especially in terms of Bigfoot so while I genuinely applaud Jeff Meldrum's efforts to look at it I mean that's that's great we we need scientists exactly like you exactly like Jeff and others to look at this I mean I think that we we would all agree that the issue of Bigfoot is a legitimate subject of scientific inquiry Uh, but the problem is that there as you know the, the quality of the research uh, is so far below <laughs> anything that would be published anywhere. Uh, I think that's a big problem. And, and if, if, if Jeff and others want to get their act together and tighten up the, the controls and you know do, do solid research, I think they would see it going somewhere. If somebody 
put a grant proposal forth and asked me to be on it, I would put my name down as saying they will send their samples to me. Here is the protocol that I will use to test them. And here is how I will present the data. I will give my interpretation of, of the results, but the, the data won't lie. So if, if a credible person wanted to say, we're going to go look, we're going to collect samples, if I can meet my costs, I'll analyze those samples for them in a grant proposal. Um, that, that, that sounds great. I mean, that's exactly the sort of thing that they need to hear so that the next time they, well, they say, oh, well, Jeff, no one takes it seriously, it's like, well, here's other, one right here. You know, other people, um, in fact, the group I just worked with, I'll, I'll keep them nameless at the moment, you know, they're trying to create a new foundation. They got some independent funding, et cetera, and they're looking for a lab to do their analysis. And I'm not even trying to profit. I'm like, you, I break even. I'm happy. You know, as long as it actually cost me money, I'll do it. But, you know, it, it's when I put a postdoc or somebody on it, it's not like I can do this for $10 a pop. <laughs> you know, there, there's real costs involved, but I'm willing to do those at the break-even point. How much is an analysis? Oh. Sorry, go ahead, Karen. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask, of the, you said that you've tested 30 samples so far. Um, what made, made those good enough uh, examples for you to want to actually test them? Well, some of them probably weren't good enough, I'll admit. <laughs> Once you establish a relationship, say, with a producer from a TV show, you know, so the first sample he gives you, he, they have this great story, they have, you know, photographs and stuff, you're like, well... I'm skeptical, but I'll do it for you. Once you sort of have a few pints with the guy after the shoot, and he calls you up a month later and says, hey, I got another sample, you might be more willing to do it than you probably should if it was a cold call. But others, it was, you know, I looked at the samples like, well, that sample looks like it's in great shape. You know, there's fresh red blood there on that glass, and they quickly scooped it up, put it in the freezer, I will be able to get DNA out of that, you know, whatever it might be. Sometimes when they're like, oh, we got this handprint on a window eight feet off the ground that's been there for six months in the Florida sun, you know, I'm going to say, there's no way it's going to work. It's just not worth the time and effort. You know, I'm not going to take people off real science projects to do a complete whim. But if there's a sample that looks like it could actually yield DNA, I'll do it. Because just many samples won't. You know, there's not a chance in hell that they're actually going to have viable DNA. And so I don't even want to bother with those. And if the story is interesting, you know, I, I might go for it. Or, again, if I have a relationship with the group. I'm sure people who, I don't want to keep harping on Jeff, that's no, okay. Well, person I with. <laughs> when Jeff asks me to do something, I do it. You know, because we we're friends and we have a relationship. But he's not gonna. I'm I'm sure Jeff even gets guys who he thinks are crazy. He's not going to pass them on to me. I, I count on my friends and colleagues and other people to to screen, if you will. 
when DNA results come back uh, inconclusive or unknown. Well, what exactly does inconclusive or unknown mean? If it's a sample that literally just did not yield any DNA, and I I can say nothing. <laughs> I can say I could not get DNA out of this sample. So it doesn't mean it's a mysterious creature. It just means that you couldn't get anything out of it. Right. If I've gotten DNA, I have never had a sample that I couldn't say what it was. You know, so I, I, I've never had the wow, this is a DNA signature never before seen by humans. I have never had that. The database is pretty full. The worst I could do is I could say it's avian, it's reptile, it's mammal, you know, or it's bacterial. But that's assuming I have DNA. You know, and that at least narrows it down. It's kind of a nerdy question, but (laughs) if you don't mind going deep for a minute, how does the actual database uh, compare uh, samples to known samples? Is it like, does it do it at the ACGT level? We literally compare the individual nucleotide bases and look for basically a percentage match. Modern human, all of us on the planet today, we're about 99.9% identical. There's only about a tenth of a percent difference amongst modern people today on average. And so if I get a 99, you know, 0.9% match, ah, it's modern human. And in fact, we've screened so many modern humans, I can usually tell you roughly to which group it belongs. On the other hand, you know, depending on the region of DNA, you know, we're anywhere from 98 to 99% identical to chimpanzees, maybe about 97% to uh, gorillas and 95 or 96% to orangutans. So it, it's, it's literally a, a direct match. And if it's questionable or close, we sample another region of DNA and get sort of independent confirmation of that. So if you have one little region that's 99%, you're like, well, is that human or chimp? Then you do another region. If it's also 99%, then you realize we're talking on the order of human-chimp differences. But if the second sample's even more similar, you say, well, the first sample was a little bit weird, you know, a little more, two humans who were a little more different than you would expect... Because these are averages, they have, you know, these are mean values with standard deviations. The more data you collect, obviously, the stronger your result. But when you're differentiating, you know, genera of mammals, is this on the orangutan lineage or on the human lineage? You don't need a lot of DNA. If you're saying, is this person European or Asian or African, you need a lot more DNA. Interesting. So, so how does it know where the sample, when it sees a string of, of uh, nucleotides, how does it know where that falls uh, if you have a partial sample or if you're not able to get a, a good extraction? The cool thing is it looks at it all. <laughs> I mean, the, the, com- the, the computers now are so fast. You, you, I can get a 400-base segment of DNA I literally can run it against the entire known published record in milliseconds. 
Wow. I actually have the entire human genome, chimpanzee genome, macaque genome, dog genome, rat, mouse, and partial orang genome, and others on my laptop. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You, you can do this. You can actually, this is a publicly available database. You can either search for it using the government's computers, and it'll take anywhere from five seconds to 15 minutes, depending on the time of day and how busy it is. Or you can download it to your own computer and do it basically instantaneously. In my laboratory, we've basically downloaded the database, and then we update it every night, um, which there are tools that they give you to use. Um, I mean, this thing, it's called GenBank. It's, it's the National uh, Institute of Health, the NIH, pays for this large international database. It's the ultimate Freedom of Information Act source. It's like everything that's published and everything the government's paid for is there almost instantly. That's so cool. So you, you can search everything in a matter of seconds to minutes. And again, I, you know, if I suspect it's primate to make it go faster, I'll say only look at primates. But I could say look at all of life and in 3 minutes it will have searched every nucleotide, every ACGNT ever known it will look for and see if I get a match. <laughs> wow, I love it. How do you go from uh, the, let's say, if uh, if DNA is analog, uh, how do you go to the digital mode? Is the machines do that for you? They get, they spit out uh, uh, the letters? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, yeah, it'll basically, well, in fact, DNA is digital. If you really think about it, it's, instead of being binary, it's uh, got four um, bases. So, I mean, DNA is inherently it is A, C, G, or T at an individual spot. There's no intermediate. So, and then you just have to, if you have a hundred of those in a row, you match that string of a hundred of them against all of the known DNA, and you get a result back saying 99 of them match. You focus your energies then on trying to figure out what that is. But, you know, if, again, if it's just 99 out of 100, like flipping a coin, now you're going to want to do 1,000. So is it literally 900 out of 1,000, or is it 999 out of 1,000? That's what tells you the difference between, say, human and chimpanzee. So if you, know, if you only flip a coin 10 times, it's unlikely right, you're going right. to get five, five, right? Yeah. So you do it 100 times, you're going to have somewhere between 45 and 55, but it's still not going to be 50-50. Even if you do it 1,000 times, it's not going to be 500 and 500, but it might be 499 and 501, and you say, good enough for me. Sure. Now, you, So it takes uh, three or four minutes to run a sequence uh, and compare it to the database. How long does it take to pull the DNA sequence out of the samples? So from... Depending on how urgent you're, you know, so let's say you're trying to solve a, a kidnapping case, you know, and you're 
checking the DNA on the the, uh, the guy who was stupid enough to lick the stamp. On, well, <laughs> I guess you don't lick stamps anymore, but uh, he, he licked the envelope that he mailed the ransom demand in. If you wanted to know the result, you could, the very fastest you could, I guess, theoretically generate sequence would be maybe four to six hours. We usually do a leisurely two or three days. And that's just because, I mean, if I said, start extracting the sample, instantly start the analysis and do it the second everything's ready. Because if you do it the, the normal way, you have a couple steps where there's like two-hour waits, you know, like, like cooking a cake in the oven. I mean, because it's literally in an incubator. If you do it the really hyper-special way, you can... It's like using a convection microwave. You know, instead of a two-hour bake, you can bake it in 15 minutes. We normally don't do that. Because, you know, if you did that, you'd never have any free time. (laughs) If if every 15 minutes you had to do something, when are you going to read your articles and write your papers? So having two or four hours while it's baking, (laughs) you know... (laughs) You can go to lunch, you can read a paper, you can go have a pint or whatever, and, you know, come back and get back to work. If you have to work every 15 minutes, you'd be on an assembly line and going insane. Normally, we do it, let's say, two to three days, and that's that's leisurely. Speaking of pints, uh, I added you on Facebook last night, and I found your favorite quote is that everybody must believe in something. I believe I'll have another beer. Yeah, that, that is. That, I learned that from my advisor at Harvard. That was actually a engraved sign above his door, and uh, I've been practicing that ever since. <laughs> then I knew you were a skeptic. Yeah, science has to be fun, and beer is good for what ails you. Exactly. That was my so ale joke. Oh, oh, okay. Oh. Way to go, Blake. I thought we were just getting intellectual here. Yeah, relatively fun for Just pull the tone down. So you mentioned that DNA is now available from hair samples. That's a pretty recent occurrence, right? Um, let's see. Uh, I think the first example of that technically was 1998 so depending on how old you are that's either recent or a whole long time ago oh i remember i meant from uh, not without not requiring the root that was the difference yeah um if you have a root you probably have a 95 percent probability of getting it if you don't have the root it's probably only 50 50 at the moment um, and again, it depends how much time and money you're willing to throw at it. If this is going to break the huge case, you know, and put a murderer behind bars, you're going to put more effort than if you're looking at Bigfoot. <laughs> um, you know, so I usually don't throw the full toolbox at most of these samples. But if you came up with something interesting, you could then redo the samples with the yeah. Right, I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Neat. So, out of the DNA field, but um, still related to Bigfoot, 
What do you think about the morphological differences of the creatures that are being reported across the country, like five toes or four toes or six foot tall or nine foot tall? Uh, you know, the, the toe issue is strange. I mean, you know, it's sort of like the Simpsons, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I would be shy. <laughs> There's no other primate known with four toes, you know. There are a couple who have reduced their thumbs, but, you know, that's a really evolutionary conservative feature, the number of toes. I mean, this coast, you know, frogs and coelacanths have five digits. You know, this is a general vertebrate trait. You know, unless you're becoming a unicorn, well, any horse, um, and reduce the number of toes, I can't imagine a primate reducing it down to four toes. Um, height, hey, you know, I can look in my household, different, you know, anywhere from five foot to, you know, six foot. Um, seeing a six foot one versus a nine foot one, I, I have trouble with a nine foot primate personally. Uh, they would be really big. <laughs> well, that's the Gigantopithecus, you know, if it's supposed to be somewhat like a, uh, an orangutan, um, I've seen. I've only seen them pictured in the. There's kind of a famous model that shows one standing upright. Um, I actually just gave a lecture out at the University of Iowa where they actually have one of those original models there. I, I just don't. That seems. It's likely they weren't that big. First of all, they had really big teeth and jaws, but I I doubt if they were nine feet tall. You know, I, I would be shocked if they broke six feet. You know, if you, even a gorilla, you stand a gorilla upright, they're not that tall. They're much heavier than us. You know, he can weigh 400 pounds, or a male orang can weigh 400 pounds. He's not taller than you or I, though. So, you know, just because you have gigantic teeth and great big jaws doesn't necessarily make you nine feet tall. It means... You have great big teeth because you're eating something, you know, that requires all those forces, and you have a big jaw to hold them, etc. So, I, I don't imagine that they were huge. If 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 a primate would evolve, you know, into Bigfoot, I don't think they would be that giant, you know, except for the fact that they have big feet. But I have yet to see a Bigfoot cast or whatever that hasn't been proven to be fraudulent. You know, if you call it Bigfoot, when you make the footprints, you make them big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well put. If we call it Littlefoot, I guarantee you there'd be a bunch of tiny little human-like footprints all over the place. I've actually helped analyze those, you know, the Orang Pendek from uh, oh, yeah. Born Sumatra. You know, they call that one Littlefoot. And guess what they find? Little footprints. There you go. Mm, We're going to have to do another show on that, too. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So didn't you do a, some tests on the orange appendix and find uh, human DNA? Yeah, but again, that's what would fall under inconclusive. It was either they were being completely hoaxed or when they collected it or the other people who analyzed it, if 
it was a contaminant. It would mean the original sample is in such bad shape that there's no original DNA left in it, and it only contains the contaminant. Because the good news with sort of the way we analyze our stuff is if there really was boring Pendek or, let's say, Bigfoot DNA in a sample, and the people who collected it or my lab tech or somebody else contaminated it, we would actually get two signals or two signatures. One would be, and you sort of subtract off then, the mo- you sequence your tech or you ask for you know, a hair from the guy who collected the sample. Ah, okay. Subtract off their signature. So let's say you have a string of ACGs and Ts that are really Bigfoot, and you have another string of ACGs and Ts that are the person who collected it. You could see at some points you're going to have an A and a G. If the person who collected it is A there, you can reasonably assume that the sample had the G. Something had to leave the G there. So even if it's contaminated, we can sort of subtract off the contamination. And even after we've done that, we've never had a DNA signature that wasn't explained by being a human or some other mammal or whatever. Wow. Do, do, is that done all digitally as well? Is that all done? Or do you yeah. Have, is that, that is so cool. Yeah. Do you have like a scripting language you use with those programs or is it built in? Or? Uh, it's it's built in. We have. I mean, we've actually written a whole bunch of Perl scripts and Python scripts and other things. But in fact, that's just a standard tool set available with almost any DNA analysis package, commercial or open source, that you might use. It's all there. Even the government database gives you tools. They even give you the scripts if you want to rewrite them and modify them for your own. Thing. This one thing the government does really well is sort of make this data available to the scientific community and the tools to analyze it. It's it's yeah, kudos to the government on this. Now, do you feed back into GenBank as well as you find you kind of? Well, everything we sequence and publish, we you know give back. I don't put my uh, cryptos there because they're not <laughs> crypto. You know, right? They're out and go. You know, or bear, or pig, or human. So there's no sense in putting that in the database because it's already there. Let's hear a quick clip from Monster Quest where they discuss a DNA sample that you analyzed. Mitochondrial DNA is the most accurate method known for species identification and should be able to pinpoint whether the hair sample is that of a man or a non-human primate. Once we can recover DNA, we can amplify it, make billions of copies of it in a matter of hours in the laboratory, and then we can sequence those copies. We can determine the exact linear sequence of the DNA bases, the A's, C's, G's, and T's. Once we have those, we can compare them to a database of basically all the known living organisms on the planet today. But Professor Dissatel has hit a wall extracting DNA. We actually did not get DNA, so in in a sense, I don't even have a result. There was not DNA present in the material given to us. 
either that material was so degraded that any viable DNA within it had basically been destroyed by other organisms or by um, nature, or those were not biological samples. Dr. Kurt Nelson also has been doing DNA tests on the blood, hair, and tissue samples and suspects there is an unknown substance or inhibitor present that is interfering with the DNA extraction. Nelson must first identify the inhibitor and then remove it from the sequence. The inhibitor has been identified. The galvanizing on the screws was mixed in with the animal DNA. Nelson can now nudge DNA from the purified samples. The scientific evidence at this point is suggesting that there really is an animal there. I cut it out, I repurified it, and I amplified it again using the same primers. I got a very strong reaction when I did that. And the reason was that I had gotten rid of the inhibitory stuff by running it out that way. And I found that it was identical to human DNA, except it had one nucleotide polymorphism. That nucleotide that was different was a difference that is shared with chimpanzees. I got DNA that was primate DNA, and I knew that I might be looking at the DNA of a Sasquatch. Now, I, I, this, this, this is not going to be a well-constructed question, I apologize, but the Canadian screwboard DNA, my understanding was that after you didn't find anything, uh, they came back with a, and took it to a different place and had different filters and were able to track something down? I don't uh, how to be how to be polite here? <laughs> um, I actually eventually received those sequences. They were I can't remember if it was one or two bases different from human, but again, you and I might differ. So, my interpretation of that result was with very careful and selective editing. <laughs> It you know a one base difference in that region is still a human. This might not be you. It might be the guy down the street. So uh, I honestly think that particular example was just an example of laboratory contamination, and that I, I can't tell you how often that happened. <laughs> our our methods are so sensitive that you know one molecule that you sneezed out last week on the tip of your pipetter might be the one that you end up analyzing. So the, the, the Canadian example of, I mean, we were very careful with it. I honestly don't think that one base different sequence, which falls completely in the realm of modern humans. And that was what was edited out. I analyzed that sequence as well. I found there are humans with an identical sequence to that. The human sequence that they tested it against was one base different. There are other humans with exactly that same signature. And so my... So, so as always, it just depends on what you're comparing it against. Right, right, exactly. You know, again, what do we mean by the human? You know, is that, you know, Yao Ming or, you know, uh, Vernon Troyer? 
you know. <laughs> wow, good choice. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Is it the tallest guy you know or the shortest guy you know? Who's human? They're both human. We're variable. Wow. Well, this has been really great. You guys have any more questions, Karen or Ben? Uh, I think uh, not for me. I mean, I think I think this has been very informative and interesting, and I um, I it's it's nice to actually have a let an expert actually sit there and talk a bit instead of just having it cut down into little sound bites. So uh, it's uh, it's been fascinating. Yeah, I think that was uh, going to be my question to to basically ask or to say that you seem to be the token skeptic on uh, Monster Quest and uh, that you're only afforded sound bites. Is there anything that you've ever said that was uh, critical or revealing that was edited out of the shows? Oh, all, all, all the time. <laughs> Seriously, all the time. I predicted that. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's actually, I, I've learned a lot, you know, because there is not a sentence you've ever seen on one of those shows that didn't go through six or seven takes. I mean, you know, my two and a half minutes on the average show usually goes from about 8.30 in the morning to about 6.30 at night of actual shooting. I mean, a lot of it's trying to get an egghead geek like me trying to say it in English, you know, so that people can understand it who aren't expert in the field, you know. But I know the game. These guys are also trying to make an interesting show, and I'm more than happy. Hey, I get to talk about evolution on television to the masses, which, you know, not a lot of... The E-word doesn't get mentioned often enough That's true. on the That's news true. and Amen. so on. <laughs> so I, uh, that's one of the reasons I do it. But, you know, and I, I know some of these guys, you know, and I'll say, you know, we've had to rephrase answers to, you know, where I can say, well, hey, I don't really think this, to, well, the data doesn't show that, so maybe it's still possible. And, in fact, that's technically true. You know, scientists, we're real humans, too. I don't have irrefutable evidence to say Bigfoot does not exist. Because there is no such possible evidence of that. You know, that's not science. That, that, you know, that's a positive answer. I cannot say Bigfoot does not exist. I can say no evidence to date has revealed the existence of Bigfoot. Therefore, it's possible. And that's how they always want to end the show. Well, this test didn't prove it, but it didn't disprove it. But, you know, again, you can't disprove something. Right. Yeah, they always like to, you know, they always like to, to, to exploit the, uh, the, the fallibility of science and, and the, the fact that nothing in science is ever definitive. And so as long as they can get someone to say, well, you know, if this isn't definitive, then there's like, well, you make up your mind, you know. Right, exactly. And you, you, you called it the fallibility of science. I, I would turn that around. That's the strength of it. We're, we're not religion. We're not belief. We're not infallible. That's... That's why I'm a scientist. And that's why we Perfect. support skepticism, exactly. So it, it, we think that's the best way to look at these things. And you sort of invoked uh, a little rule. I don't know if anyone else has come up with it, but it's the uh, your screen time on paranormal shows is adversely proportional to your skepticism. So. Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> shows where I was 
extraordinarily negative. It's down to, I think my record is like 48 seconds. Oh, wow, Ben, he beat you. Look at that. That's pretty good, man. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's remarkable. Yeah. You're doing well. The better ones are when... They sort of, you know, the camera's rolling, but they're not. They're no longer asking you about your own area. They're just asking about other stuff, and that gets on it. <laughs> My last show, I am talking about archaeology and architecture and astronomy, because they asked me the question. While the, you know, I just gave my opinion. It wasn't a scientific opinion. It was what I thought. And though that's what actually made it. Not one of my DNA answers <laughs> made it. Only my architecture and astronomy questions. Well, I have to say this has been really refreshing. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to answer all our questions. This is great. We really want this to be an opportunity for people to get out the skeptical viewpoint and to get out the real science because, I mean, honestly, this stuff is amazing. I mean, you talked about uh, just DNA analysis for a little bit here, and I can already see we could easily talk another hour about the ethical implications of uh, what human DNA means to crime and all these sort of things. I'm sure you already run into that, but, I mean, it's just yeah. the science is so much cooler than just the is there a, a giant ape in North America. So. Yeah, so, guys, get a TV show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's great>. Yeah. <laughs> I, I now know some people. Let's talk. Okay. Well, All right. You let us know. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, take care. Okay, Bye. Good night. Bye. That was excellent. He's, he's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, that was really cool. I'm really happy. I had hoped that he was way more skeptical than he was coming across on television, and that, that was dead on. That was awesome. So. Well, he wasn't coming across much on television. They weren't giving him much airtime in comparison to everyone else. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, this is great. Ah, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk. Today, you heard an interview with NYU professor Todd Disotel, conducted by Monster Talkers Ben Radford, Dr. Karen Stolls now, and Blake Smith. Music today was provided by Peach Stealing Monkeys through the Podsafe Music Network. Thanks to Mrs. Dr. Atlantis, especially if she's actually listening. Oops, I'm going to have to get the snort out of there and post as well. <laughs>